One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning, and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to Living History UK podcast. And today we have got a very special guest. I'm Danny Reese, and we're joined by our international correspondent and international man of mystery, John Shanahan. Welcome to the channel, John. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I've been here before, nothing new. So Danny wants to question me about a specific subject that I have a small bit of knowledge on. Um, So let's see how we go. Well, yes, those of you today who've been... Well, today being the 7th of April, uh, we've seen on the news that it's currently the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which has brought peace and a certain level of stability to not just Northern Ireland, but Greater Ireland and the United Kingdom itself. So we're actually going to look today into more of the history surrounding not just the Good Friday Agreement, but what actually, in a way, kick-started and going back to the Easter Risings of 1916. And I thought of no one else better in the whole world to ask than John. Is it because I'm Irish, is it? But, uh, um, yeah, so 1916. If you want to take 1916 as the start of Irish um, independentness, shall we say, it was taken as a as a historical point or a historical point in time, 1916. But if you want to go all the way back as far as 1912, with the granting of home rule in Ireland, um, that's pretty much when what happened in 1916 started. Was in 1912 in the granting of Irish home rule. So yeah, I think I think most of our listeners will know that uh, yeah, the Irish struggle, so to speak, has been going back hundreds of, hundreds of years, and I think it's in the last. 100 years or so, we can really look back and see those of you who've seen, for example, the films The Wind That Shakes the Barley, uh, Michael Collins' film, you've had a little snapshot. But I think, in a way, we don't see much of it within the big island, as it were, of the, some of the real struggles. We know about Banner, Northern Ireland from 1960s onwards, but we don't know much about this early history. I think it's really important, in a way, that we look back at this, especially those of us who reenact the Great War, to understand what was going on at home at the time, uh, what was going in, uh, you know, what people were worrying about, you know, also with things, uh, garrison troops that were in Ireland at the time. So, well, when you look at it this way, um, okay, Ireland was granted home rule in 1912, right? Uh, from 1912 until 1916, or, or sorry, from 1912 until 1914, until the start of the First World War, you had nearly a civil war in Ireland between the Unionists who were the Protestant minority in the north, or sorry, Protestant majority in the north, but minority in the south. And you had the Catholic majority in the south, but minority in the north. And they formed two separate militias called the Irish Volunteers and the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force. They were going to fight each other against home rule. 
Now, listen to this in, in, uh, quickly, okay? Or for those people that aren't, don't understand. You had unionists in the north of Ireland going fighting the British crown to stop home rule being granted. You had Irish Catholics in the south forming their own militia, the Irish volunteers, to fight for home rule with the backing of the crown. So people don't realise that when they think about that. I've, I've seen it. I've, I've shown you in the past. I've come across things like Martini Henry's that have got stamps on the butts with UVF stamp. Was that from later? Or was that from that year? Was 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 arms being supplied at the time by the government via via dealers or through? Um, it was it was a big gun running going on. The British government was turning a blind eye to these two militias being formed: the Irish Volunteers and the UVF in the north. Okay. Um, so when the UVF was being formed, they were stamping their own stuff. Now, unfortunately, an awful lot of those stamps um, are fictitious. They're fake. There, there was a guy years ago made of stamp, and every Martini Henry rifle you'll find now on sale in Ireland has a UVF stamp on it. Um, same with um, uh, SMLEs. You'll find them with this UVF stamp. The, 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 the British were actually backing both sides because they didn't know which side would win. So they were backing the UVF and they were turning a blind eye to the Irish as well at the same time. Now, um, they, the, the British Unionists signed this thing called a Covenant, which was in their own blood, that they were going to fight for to stop home rule coming into Ireland. Um, and that's when they started forming this UVF um, militia. And then, as I said, on the Irish side, you had the Irish Volunteers. The Irish Volunteers was at the height or their strength just prior to First World War was about 180,000 to about 100,000 UVF on the other side. Oh, so it wasn't, you, you think of it as just small pockets, especially when you think I, the wind the shakes about it was obviously after the Great War and a different kettle of fish, but you always think of it as small pockets, but not as such large numbers of armed men and women. Because it was women involved as well, you know. They, they wouldn't, it was all, it's equal at the end of the day, being involved in this struggle, as it were. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the women's branch of the uh, IRA or the Irish Republican Brotherhood, as they were at that time, were um, coming them on, what was called coming them on. Uh, in around that time as well, you had the formation of the Gaelic League, which was like the, to bring the Irish culture back in. So you had the, the GEA, the Gaelic Athletic Association, um, which is still there to this day. You have football, hurling, handball, all these old Irish sports that were being brought back up. Um, you had the 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 rebirth of the Irish language. There was there was a lot historically going on around that time frame as well. What's to say? Was that a case of when they were, yeah, in that, especially pre Great War, shall we say, the the, the pushback to the English uh, landowners, as it were, and and stuff like you, know, you see about these big landed gentry families who were getting burnt out of their houses and stuff like that. Was that a case of that time? Were they, were they pushing back from from the landowning oppressors, shall we say? Um, like you, you had rebellions going all the way back to 1798, another famous rebellion in Ireland. Um, the, the areas as well, like you, at that time frame, you don't really see landlords being burnt out of it. Um, towards, we'll say after 1916, 17, 18, 19, 20, that's when you see the landlords getting burnt or, or big estates being burnt and stuff like that. Um, but initially in that time frame, 1914, just prior to the First World War, um, the, 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 the IRA and the, the thought of independence and stuff like that was people believed at that stage we had got our home rule bill. So we were mm. looking forward to home rule. We were going to have our own parliament. I believe that was part of the conditions of you know, the Great War. You know, the, the prime minister at the time, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, I'll be promised. That if, if, the, if the sons of Ireland fought for the crown, that they'd be given home rule at the end of the end of the conflict. Yeah, that was exactly it. Um, I think it was Lloyd George. For, forgive me if it was if the, it was the Welshman, it, the Welsh Welsh Lloyd George. <laughs> I, I believe it was Lloyd George. But okay, Germans started First World War. Uh, Archduke Ferdinand is after being executed, assassinated, whatever you want to call it, and. We are now at war. Ireland still being part of the UK at the time. Um, 
they're looking around for soldiers and they went, okay, well, we've lots of soldiers garrisoned in Ireland. Now, remember at that stage in Ireland, the British Army was probably one of the biggest employers of Irish men. Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of Victorian medals in my collection. Most of, the, most of those men did a tour in Ireland to Curahab. Cur- I'm going to say it wrong now. Curahab Barracks? The Curahab Yeah, the Curahab uh, Close enough. Uh, I think most of the Victorian men I've got in my collection at some point went through that camp. All their sons and daughters yeah. were born, or they were married in that camp. Yeah. But like when you consider Irish regiments at the start of the First World War, you had the, the Royal Irish Regiment, you had the Munster Fusiliers, the Leinster Regiment, the Dublin Fusiliers, the Connacht Rangers, the South Irish Horse, the North Irish Horse, Enniskill and Dragoon Guards, Enniskill and Fusiliers. The list goes on. Like there was multiple, multiple Irish regiments in the British Army at that time. Irish guards, sorry, famous one. Forgot about them. Right. <laughs> so, Don't forget the guards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the First World War broke out. The Prime Minister um, went, "Okay, we need manpower." So here you have one hundred and eighty thousand Irish guys already armed, already trained in the Irish Volunteers. We can form an entire division of these guys if they come fight for us in France. And he literally said that to the Irish volunteers. And they left. The, the vast majority of Irish volunteers left. So it was a nine out of 10 of the volunteers left and they went to fight in France. They formed the 16th Irish division, right, in France. Okay. He turned around and said the exact same thing to the unionists in the north. If you go fight in France, we'll talk about stopping home rule when you get back, right? Playing politics. So they left. UVF left and they went and fought in France. They formed the 36th Ulster Division in France. Right? Ulster Tower. That's where the memorial for them. It's fantastic. Yeah, the Ulster Tower. So you had these two Irish divisions and they fought side by side as well, remember this, in France. Right? You also had the professional Irish regiment, professional side of it, in France at the time. Munster Fusiliers are famous from the retreat from Mons as Paul in the rear guard um, and literally doing a fight and retreat the whole way back. So, like, at the start of the war and going into 1916, there was no aspect of where Ireland's loyalties stood at that time. It was literally, we want home rule and this we're going to fight for home rule. It's just the way and the means, isn't it? You're giving this his carrot on the end of a stick, so to speak. But then, obviously, by 1916, the slaughter on the Somme, you know, so things like, well, it was before the slaughter on the Somme. It, we, we'd had the big problems in Gallipoli. I know there was Irish regiments involved in Gallipoli and stuff. And, of course, you know, we were looking at the big, bigger battles of Mons and Ypres and stuff like that. So, you know, we're now looking, moving into the Easter festivities of 1916, aren't we? Well, yes. Um... What's that old saying? Uh, uh, like Engl- England's England's trouble is our is our. I can't remember the, the exact words on it, but so you had no. Remember the IRA were not actually there at the time. They were called the Irish Republican Brotherhood, all right? And they sort of came into this idea. Okay, England's eye now has been kept in France, so. While they're over there concentrating on the French, on the Germans, we'll cause our own little trouble here. So they basically went and they approached the Germans and said, "Okay, give us guns, give us this, give us that, and uh, we'll we'll start a second front in in Ireland." And they recruited. Uh, now, remember, you had still had some of the Irish volunteers that weren't happy about going fighting in France. They stayed back. Um, you also had another group in Ireland was after forming at the time called the Irish Citizen Army, and they were part of a union-based group, so they were there to protect the workers and stuff like that. So they all formed, you had all these separate little militias and little organisations, which all came together to form the Royal, or the Irish, Royal, the Irish Republican Army. Didn't, didn't uh, I did read once that they were looking at actually the Germans were actually doing a landing. I know for you thinking this is very much a Second World War, but weren't the Germans at one point looking at putting actually troops into our in, into Southern Ireland, as it were? They did actually. Like there, there, there has been like all the way back as far as Napoleon, there's been ideas of let's invade Ireland, let's get to England through Ireland. Um, 
There was talk of him uh, lending 10,000 German soldiers in Cork, in a place called Queenstown. It is now uh, Yall, if I remember correctly, is the name now that it's called. Um, but yeah, there was those ideas. Now, they did pro- they did provide guns and arms. Uh, you had the Hoat, Hoat gun runners was a famous one. There was um, the, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but there was a ship seized just prior to 1916 by the British Navy, um, and it was actually scuttled. Um, uh, oh God, what, was it the Odd? Couldn't be the Odd. You'll have to forgive me, but there was a there was a ship that was scuttled that had hundreds of thousands of ships on it. And believe it or not, it's actually a restricted area. You cannot dive there to this day um, because they're afraid of Martini Henrys and Mausers and all this stuff. Being An awful taken lot over. of Mausers, yeah. I think the arms shipped over by the Germans. It would have been mainly that. Would it be mainly their weapons, or was it captured SMLEs sent over, or? It, it was, it was, it was an awful lot of Russian, it was an awful lot of captured Russian stuff and it was an awful lot because they were trying to keep their own good stuff for them. Um, so it was an awful lot of captured bringbacks or uh, like uh, stuff that they'd gotten off the Eastern Front. Because remember 1916, the Eastern Front was literally, the Russians were dealing with their own issues at that stage as well too. Like, Yeah, I can see, I can see why the Germans would just ship any old stuff they'd found, you know, SMLEs captured yeah. early in the war and Russian stuff, ship it over because then again today it's, it's a nightmare trying to run an army on five or six different rifle caliber ammunitions. So just, yeah, we'll give them some guns. We don't care what it is, but it looks good. Cause we're giving them some guns. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly it. So, yeah. So that was the start lead up into 1916. And if you ask me, 1916 was a bit of a romantic idea between some guys that, okay, you had Clark, you had Connolly, you had Pierce. They were the leaders of 1916. Um, there was, 12 of them all together, if I remember. Um, but it was a bit of a romantic idea. You're, you're, you're forming this militia to stand up and fight one of the biggest armies in the world um, with no guns, no ammunition, and no training. So, And um, also, also fighting in an urban area, which yeah, our ex-regulars who are listening, listening to the thing, it's all right running, doing hit-and-run ambushes in the countryside, but once you're trying to take on an urban area, you've got to have a logistical and manpower advantage to take on an urban area. Oh, but but that's exactly it. Like I mean, um, like I'm an ex uh, I'm an ex soldier. You're an ex RAF. Like like logistics is ridiculous. Like you know, like to, to put a platoon of guys out in the ground, it will take nearly two platoons of guys to support them um, with. Food, water, ammunition, transport, um, all this stuff needs to be to be done. Now, when you look at 1916 in itself, it nearly didn't come off because there was an exercise planned and they had it encoded. It was going to be in all the newspapers that it was going to happen on Easter Monday um, at such a time. And the, the uprising was going to be countrywide. Now, you had... Don't get me wrong. You had very, very good Irish volunteer groups and Irish Republic or Irish Army now at this stage, Irish Army groups in certain areas. The Irish Army or the Irish Republican Army in Cork, Tralee, Limerick, Clare, Galway, they were the best and fantastic trained units. And that's where an awful lot of the fighting happened after 1916, because these lads a letter, a, a, a thing came out in the newspaper saying they were to stand up on Monday morning, but it was counteracted by another order because the gunships were after being found and there was no weapons. So the leaders of the Irish volunteers cancelled the initial order that was in the paper. So half the volunteers stood up, the other half didn't because they didn't know that the rising was actually happening. The main rising happened in Dublin and, and one other area in, in the County Leash where they attacked the train. Blimey, it's a bit of an undertaking if you think about attacking a train. We we know that from our World War II SAS research, but taking on a train is quite a quite a feat for really, for a militia, if you think about it, you know, and a, a, not a poorly trained, but a, not trained up to regular standards trying to take on a, a, a train load. Were they successful on this train? I don't know. I've never heard this one before. They were, they, 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 what they actually did was they, um, on a literally a 90 degree bend where the train was going slow anyway they dug up the track so the train oh. could only stop and then when, the, when when the train stopped they literally just 
jumped up on top of it and pulled all the guards off it and stuff. Um, oh, there's no, there's no fantastic explosion and derailing of carriages. There was, I t- I, there was an explosion, like the head grenade, the head mills bombs and stuff like that. They threw into the train and stuff, but there was no big. I only told you blow the doors off type of thing, like do you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 fantastical thing like you see on the um, oh, the longest day or something like you know. We see a train being derailed and uh, or, or yeah, those yeah, of no, you, no, those of no. you. Those of you who have read uh, Damien Lewis's account of Sabu Seventy and Band of Brother uh, Band of Brothers, the uh, SAS book, where you got Ginger Jones jumping on the track, grabbing his Brennan gun, firing it from the hip into a train as it's coming towards him. You know, it's very it's very Commando comic style, but it's true. Uh, but no, yeah. yeah. So we've come we've come around them. Basically, we've got these various groups who are armed in various ways, but they've got this romantic idea of as it were, striking at the heart of the British forces or the British government, as it were, in Ireland, in, in Dublin specifically. So I know we've all heard bits and bobs about Irish. So what was, what was the actual plan of the day? So the plan of the day was they were going to rise up across the country. They were going to rise up in whole strategic buildings, whole strategic areas, um, and hold out as long as they could for the media to get to America, get to France, get to all these other places and go, hang on a second, Ireland is after rising, the people are after rising in Ireland um, and the British are hounding them and beating them and, and, and murdering them and killing them. So they basically wanted to come to the negotiating table by this uprising. They were going to hold out as long as they possibly could can for the media coverage to turn. Because Now remember at this stage in the war, the British were mad for the Americans to join the war. And a lot of the population in Ireland or in, a, in America were Irish. So they were afraid of that population stopping the Americans entering into the war on the British side. So the uh-huh. Irish were saying, OK, if we can get the Americans on our side, they will talk to the British and go, OK, possibly we'll send more of our Irish men to fight in France and the Americans will join your side if you leave us alone and give us our, 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 our nation. I mean, that goes back to yeah, the Americans at the beginning of the Great War saw Europe as Britain's problem and not not involving them, really. That's why they obviously joined later. But, yeah, you can see the Irish descendants, especially, yeah, we all know now, most people in America either say they're either Scottish or Irish descent. But, um, yeah, trying to back onto, the, back onto the motherland, so to speak. So the, the, so the idea was they're going to, in strategic cities, they were going to hold specific buildings. And I think everyone who's listened to this has heard of the G, taking of the GPO the general post office yeah. as a form of central communication. Yeah. Um, and also what are the buildings they take hold of in Dublin itself? Was there, they took, think... Oh, there was lots of stuff they took in Dublin. They took um, Boland's mills, Jacob's factory, uh, the GPO, the four courts. They took over an armory in Phoenix park. Um, they took over houses in a certain area because it was overlooking the keys. Um there was lots of buildings taken, uh, not just initially. The G- Everyone thinks the GPO. It was not just the GPO. The GPO was the headquarters. Uh, as a matter of fact, De Valera, who was one of the later presidents and was one of the later leaders in after 1916, he was actually situated in Jacob's factory. Is oh. you put all your, put all, your, all your command elements in one place, do you? Because at the end of the day, if that goes, goes wibble, you lose the whole command structure, but... I think I think it's about time now, John, that you actually tell a little story of a certain little medal that we found for you via a very popular internet auction site. I think that we all <coughs> use, and its connection to the certain yeah, so, so, rising. So when you when you when okay, so they basically held out in Dublin for a week mm. for for the uh, nineteen sixteen rising. So I was happened to be at I think it was work one evening. And Danny is after getting me hooked on medals. Sorry, but Danny has got hooked on medals. So I'm, so I'm flicking through eBay, and obviously I'm looking for stuff with an Irish connection. So I find a medal by the name of McCabe, and I just happened to see through the description that he was stationed in Clonmel, which was an army barracks that I was stationed in, and he came from Clonmel. So I was like, going, oh yeah, there's a nice bit of a connection. Beat it on the medal, won the medal. Right. But before that, I had said it to Danny. I said, Danny, I said, look, I'm looking interest, interested in this medal. His name is McCabe. Here's his service number. Because Danny's a whiz kid with all these 
Google searches and, and stuff like that. So I'm like, here, do your detective work and see what you can find. So he literally, within five or ten minutes, sends me back a message going, bid on that medal, I'm after finding 32 documents with that medal. So I'm like going, all right, okay. So we bid it on the medal. And I don't know if he had put all his detective work together at this stage, but I eventually won the medal anyway. So I got the medal, and the next thing, then the detective work started. So McCabe was stationed in Clonmel up until March of 1916. Then he was moved from Clonmel to Dublin in April 1916. But he was moved on April on Mar or April first or something. He was, was he was there before. Second Garrison Battalion. He was there just before. Yeah. He was there just before the rising, right? Okay, interesting enough. I now have a medal belonged to a guy that was in Dublin at 1916, Easter week. And then I went, then he decided to put on his detective hat and he found out that he was part of the second garrison battalion. Now, any of you know anything about garrison battalions, they're pretty much there only on paper. If there's 100 men in a garrison battalion, there's a lot of men in that battalion. So, okay, we now have a battalion for him. We know he's in Dublin and we know he's there on Easter weekend or Easter week, the time of the rising. Next part of the detective work is Danny finds a chap from the same battalion that was killed on Moore Street in 1916. Now, if any of you know anything about Moore Street, Moore Street was where the guys from 1916 in the GPO retreated to and fought their last actions at Moore Street. And in Moore Street, there was a machine gun position at the top of the road and a machine gun position at the bottom of the road. And if anything came into the road, it was brassed up, right? So that was pretty much the Battle of Moore Street. All right. So where does this get my medal? So we have also got documentation from a sergeant that was in the same company, in the same battalion, as the guy that I have the medal for, writing to his sister, looking for a jacket for an IRA prisoner that was after being taken out of the GPO. Right? That sergeant was also an Irishman, by the way. And I think that so, the Irish prisoner, IRA prisoner, was also a relative of his as well, which makes it really confusing because even though this is how this is how we you know, complicated Irish politics is, this is a sergeant in an, in an yeah. English army asking for a jacket from his sister for a relative a cousin i think it was yeah how how you know yeah. uh, basically your prisoner your prisoner is a relative a cousin of the family who's also on the opposite side there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, well, I mean, like, people can say, like, so we we'll get back to the medal. We are 99.9% certain that the chap that I have the medal for was involved in 1916 on the British side because we have evidence that there was a man killed from his battalion on Moore Street. We have evidence of a man from his company and his battalion minding prisoners. Plus, you have to remember that all of England and all of Ireland were in France fighting the Germans, were caught with their pants down in Ireland 
right? So everyone that could hold a rifle in an Irish barracks was sent out to deal with these little upstarts in the GPO that now no one can get their pensions, no one can get their, no one can get anything because these little upstarts are after invading the whole of Ireland. So there is a very, 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 very good chance that McCabe was involved in 1916 from the British side. One day we'll have to add to your collection something from the Irish side, and actually that make a quite a good frame of having both sides of the both sides of the fight, so to speak. Well, quite yeah, rare. like you, you could um, the very very rare medals that you will find. Okay, so we have nineteen sixteen. Nineteen sixteen was a disaster. They fought for a week in 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 nineteen sixteen. They were taken out. Military tribunal. The offer, the leaders of nineteen sixteen were shot. Right, executed out of hand. They even shot Connolly on a chair because he was so badly injured he couldn't stand. So, hoorah, all this type of stuff. It doesn't matter what his conviction is, don't we? We still have to shoot him. So, they shot him on a chair, right? There is written evidence to the garrison, the firing squad that shot so many guys on the firing squad, or sorry, the, the, the firing squad was not replaced and they had killed so many guys or shot so many of the leaders on the same day that the firing squad was drunk because they were living off a of Dutch courage and they had started, believe it or not, to show signs of shell shock and remorse. They didn't want to do it anymore. So they had to replace the firing squad. Connolly, who was shot on the chair, the firing squad completely went to bits after shooting that man. They all had to be replaced. And when you think of when you, when you look at a movie and you see of a firing squad of six guys standing up in 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 a firing squad, I believe I have seen written evidence. Now, not all of them, but the vast majority of the firing squads that were carried out on the nineteen sixteen um, were carried out by twelve guys. You had six in the front and six on the back. You had six guys kneeling and six guys standing. So there were fairly big big firing squads. Um. So that's this, basically yeah. what happened with the leaders of 1916. They were all executed, except um, De Valera. The reason De Valera was not executed was because he had an American passport. He was an American citizen. And yet you remember, these guys and, weren't actually part of a fixed army. They were civilians in uniform. So being tried by, by, they were tried by a military court when they were, in, in essence, just militia. Yeah. That's um, less of the policy. And if you go... Yeah, and if you go back to why De Valera was saved, because he had an American passport, yet again, they did not want to upset the Americans by executing no. an American. Because I want to make good paper. So 1916, obviously, the Easter Risings, we know now, really, they're, they 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 fell. They didn't, they, but they, did, they, did the legacy of 1916, as it were, snowball into what has happened, obviously, with that banner and stuff like that? Well, what actually happened after 16 was the survivors of 16 were sent to places called Wales, Fongong Camp, Fongok Camp in Wales, right? And they basically, British, God bless them, created a university for delinquents that wanted to cause trouble. Let's put them all in the one place, the one camp, and let them learn off each other. History repeating itself, remember the maze prison. In the H blocks in 1916, or in, in, in the 60s and 70s in Up Banner. So you had Fungak Camp from 1960, or from 1960, after 1916, all the way up until 1919, I believe they closed it down. And you had the Maze Prison, right? The exact same thing. You were putting IRA prisoners in a camp where they were learning off of each other, reading books like, um, uh, like The Art of War, reading uh, all these terrorist organization books. Not so much in Fong Gok, but definitely in in um, the maze prisons, in, in, in the H-blocks. Michael Collins was being read. 19, well, you say 1919 as well. We've got all those Irishmen coming back from France and uh, other parts of the Great War in Africa and Gallipoli and um, out in Palestine and stuff like that. They were coming home and de being demobbed. And you had men... Of a young, youngish, by probably by 1918, 1919, 1920, of a youngest age, who had military experience, who had been lied to, or the, the truth been pulled over their eyes, who were now available to go into the, into the movement, so to speak. Well, this is it. Like, 
So from 1916, after 1916, after that week in 1916, when they were taken over the GPO, those guys were actually had rocks thrown at them. They had veg thrown at them. They were spat at because they were, remember, you had the vast majority. You had 180,000 guys, not including guys that joined up later, but 180 initial thousand guys from the Republic, which is a massive chunk of the population back then. Going to, the, going to France and fighting in France. Now, you had their mothers, you had their wives, you had their girlfriends, you had their, their families back home in Ireland, right? The only way these lads can send back money to look after their families is through the GPO, is through the post office. And then you have these little upstarts burn it down and take it over for a week. So now we can't get our freaking pensions. So what, what, like, what are we supposed to do? But the turning point for the population of Ireland to actually back the rising was what you said earlier on, was when they executed without proper trial the leaders of 1916. And then the war for independence pretty much starts from 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, mm -hmm. right? When you had all these soldiers coming back from France, as you said, I'm after spending four years in France, I'm after being lied to, where's my where's my home rule like and that's when you see these guys picking up the guns and starting to fight you have then you have the leaders coming out of like michael collins who came back from fong gang or Fong gok michael collins as he said himself he was actually the minister for intelligence but he actually became the minister for general mayhem right because he saw how gorilla and he he, he had read the likes of, Car uh, of Karl Marx. He had read um, uh, he had read uh, what the what's the Japanese one? Um, the Art of War, or sorry, the Chinese one. The Art oh, of Sun War. Tzu, yeah, he had yeah. worked, in, believe it or not, he had worked. Yeah, he he had worked, believe it or not, in the Royal Mail, and he had learned about organization and 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 everything needs to be planned for certain aspects of it. And when he came back, he was absolutely ruthless. When, when he took over and he became the Minister for Intelligence, he was ruthless in Ireland. And that's when the war started to kick off. That's when these guys, when they came back, as you said, they had military training. They had 90% of them had post-traumatic stress disorder probably at that stage. They weren't afraid of killing. Some of them would have been shunned when they came back because you're after taking the Queen's shilling. And look what look what they did to your fellow countrymen. So these guys literally didn't have anything to lose when they came back. This is I know we we've talked about it in the past. Like we've talked about guys, especially from the medal collecting point of view, um, guys coming back after the Great War um, and coming back to Ireland and being, as you said, treated differently. They'd gone off with the cheers and claps in 1914, you know, in the streets and the and the posies from the young ladies. But coming back in 1919, 1920. And being treated and actually having a great this that's probably that's probably why Irish medal medals to Irish regiments are quite rare because probably most of them ended up with the with the dustman. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And you you have to remember too, these lads were after coming back when the IRA that was at home had started fighting the guerrilla campaign. So they were attacking um RIC barracks, uh, police barracks. They were mm. bringing the instruct the, the the structure of the the British crown, shall we say, to its knees in Ireland. They actually were so good at their jobs and they were so good at that campaign that the RIC could not function. They had to bring in what were called, what later became known as the auxiliaries and the black and tans, which were men from the auxiliaries were officers that had served in the First World War. Or sorry, yeah, so the yes, auxiliaries were, yeah. were actually officers that had served in the First World War and the black and tans were enlisted men that had served in the First World War. And they came to bolster the RIC because they'd taken so many casualties. So many of them had left because the RIC were Irish guys, remember. The RIC were Irish Catholics. And they had just, they were literally given letters and told, you stay, you could be killed, you leave, and we leave you alone. We'll forget about it. So, like, they were being brought to their knees. The, the RIC was brought to its knees. I know with, um, with research I've done in the past, especially with auxiliary officers, a lot of them, came from, again, the end of the Great War. We've got to cut the army down. We've got to save money. We've got to show show that we're not spending all our money on the War Department. 
and the bounty for men to join the auxiliaries and latterly known black and tans was absolutely massive and an awful lot of Royal Flying Corps, which had been cut down in you know, real cut down because the, the 1919 cutback of the Air Force, a lot of pilots joined, a lot of infantry officers, men who basically had done well in the Great War, but had nothing to go home to. Men, men who, for example, men who had battlefield commissions. There's quite a few who had battle, you know, gallantry. I look at it from the gallantry medal point of view. A lot of men who had gallantry medals who, who basically their life in the Great War was better than they'd had at home. Well, yeah, that was it. Like, I mean, I think it was a pound a day, I think, to were paid, mm. which back then was savage money. Like, like yeah, seven days, that's seven pounds a week. Unfortunately, it recruited sometimes, well, most of the time, it recruited not the right type of people. I know, for example, at the time, they were also recruiting for police to police the empire and also just be basically be the head of colonial police forces. You know, for example, uh, Rhodesia wasn't around at the time, but especially a lot of African policing was done by recruited men yeah. at the end of the Great War. So it wasn't recruiting the right kind of yeah. people for the situation. But but that was it. Um, and then, like, they were let into, like, the, the auxiliaries in the Black and Tans too. Like, I, I understand, like, you're English. I understand a lot of the, uh, the, the listeners will be English and stuff like that. But these lunatics were let into Ireland with absolutely no muzzle. It was literally, do what you want, lads, we don't care. You know, it was treating like it was France. They, they, yeah, atrocities yeah. that they care. What? They were treating it as they were, they were in France at the end of the day. And you'll see pictures, no word of a lie, you'll see pictures of guys in the auxiliaries in the black and tans. Their kit is a mixture of their original uniforms and black RUC uniforms. But... You know, all the officers see. Uh, I've got, uh, I've got low slung holsters, homemade low, low quick draw holsters. It, it reminds me very much of the Wild West, and it, I don't know if they, they treated it as, as they were on the frontier, as it were. But it was, it was ridiculous. Like, and then that's where the tit for tat side of stuff came up. Like, the IRA would attack a convoy. The Black and Tens would burn a village. The IRA would kill an RIC man or kill a British policeman. The Black and Tans or the auxiliaries would kill five or six random people for no reason. Like there's a, an area, um, it's it's uh, Killaloo, it's called, and it's known as the Massacre on the Bridge, where literally four guys were in the wrong place at the wrong time. There was an ambush two or three days before that. Two um, policemen had been killed, and I think a British soldier had been killed. These four guys happened to be in the wrong time or in the wrong place. Auxiliary patrol came by, and they shot them out of hand they drug one guy across the bridge uh, with a rope on the back of a crossley tender um, like horrific stuff like that, that mm. they did and, and horrific stuff that happened like that um, but so both sides basically at that the, time it, the it was a guerrilla war yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah. like you're, you're talking uh, at this stage now um, and now you had you, you had the underhanded war as well going on in, in the big cities Collins as I said, he was the Minister for Intelligence, or the Minister for General Mayhem, as he called himself, right? He enlisted a group called the Twelve Apostles, right? To be a twelfth, a member of the Twelve Apostles, you could not be married, you could not have kids, and your parents could no longer be alive, right? And you were, you were basically an orphan. You were to have no ties whatsoever to be a Twelfth Apostle. Because Collins knew the jobs I'm going to send in these guys to, there could be replies, reprisals against their families. So these guys, when they're going to do these jobs, if they're thinking about their wife or they're thinking about their kids or they're thinking about their family, they're not doing their job. But when they, this will tell you how ruthless the man was, that he was thinking about this when he was forming this unit, that if these guys have no family, they have no mother, father, brother, sisters, they're not married and they have no kids. So who can you carry out reprisals against? And that's that these these 12 apostles then became his counter agency or his counterintelligence group. And they were very, very good at it. And he also had in Dublin Castle, he also had a, a, a turncoat. He had a double agent in there that was giving them information from the British Empire or from the British Crown Forces at the time. Um, and like th those 12 uh, apostles, the uh, first, first Bloody Sunday, we all know about Bloody Sunday in Derry, famous one. There was actually one more before that. And it happened in Dublin. 
And what actually happened was intelligence officers that were sent over from England. Some of them were actually even, believe it or not, sent down from Belfast. Collins heard word of these guys being sent into Ireland. And these guys were to break the intelligence ring that, that Michael Collins had built. So Michael Collins decided, let's act first. So what he did was he sent out the 12 apostles. Now, he had names, he had addresses, he knew where these people were living. He sent out the 12 apostles on that day, and they killed, I think, 12, 13 or 14 of them the morning of that Sunday, right? As a reprisal, there was a football match being played by Tipperary and Offaly, I believe. You can actually, this is actually in the film, Mighty Collins. Tipperary and Offaly. The auxiliaries and other British forces marched in to Crow Park, which is the big GA grounds in Dublin, and shot into the crowd as a reprisal. And that was one of the famous intelligence attacks that Collins committed was no, was that Bloody Sunday battle or Bloody Sunday, I don't know what you want to call it, infiltration or attack or assault. I think uh, the, 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 the character, the police inspector in... Um... Peaky Blinders were very much based on those that early G-Man, I can't remember his name now, Major Campbell. I can't say it without an accent. Very based upon, you can see how, those of you who've watched the Peaky Blinders series, you can see how much of a ruthless, no holes barred type of character he was. And it's probably very much based upon those those early times. But as you say now, looking at it from the collector's point of view, as it were, and the living history point of view, did did they actually have a sta- were they standardizing their kit in the uniform by this time or was it still very much ad hoc? Um, the IRA literally would, would they didn't have uniforms. Um, they they blended into the crowd as much as they possibly could. Um, they they looked like your stereotypical nineteen twenties person because that was what they were. They were guerrilla fighters. The British Army had a standard uniform at that stage. The um, auxiliaries and the black and tens. You, you could get away with anything. There's photos, as you said, there's photos of them wearing the black RIC tunics and, and, and um, the officer's type pants. There's also photos of them wearing the standard straight leg um, enlisted man's pants with, with uh, putties. There's photos of them wearing full weight webbing. There's photos of them wearing leather cavalry uh, webbing. Like they, 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 there, there was absolutely no... Bear the British soldier of the time. As for the IRA, the auxiliaries, the black and tens, they could have worn anything, do you know? Yeah, I think that's where you've got to be very careful, especially if we want to start collecting this kind of stuff. There are so many fakes and so many fantasy items out there that it is quite shocking. You know, you know for the last Malvern and Stoney, oh, especially Stoney when you came over, John, the amount of bits you have to look at and look at it again and you're thinking... Is this genuine? Has somebody, you know, has somebody got out the fantasy dressing up box and made this armband up? And it's very hard to actually say, yeah, this is a genuine item. And as you said, the early IRA didn't have any insignia. It's more likely to be from reunion items from later on and the commemorative items, for example, like the commemorative medals that were made later on. But from the living history point of view, I know those who who possibly might be interested in representing British troops stationed in Ireland in the 20s, um, and 30s maybe, the kit is pretty much standard. But those of you who are interested in the other side or possibly doing a display about the other side or showing the other forces, it's basically just some good civilian tailoring. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, like the IRA, the IRA at the time, like their goal was hit and run, then back into the crowd. Um, so they didn't want anything to stand out. Now, uh, you do come across coming among brooches, which is like... The, female IRA, shall we say. Um, and you do come across IRA brooches. But remember, if you were found with one of them, you could be shot on the spot. So, like, they weren't worn on everyday stuff. Like you said, they were worn for a parade or they were worn for a meeting or something like that. But they weren't initially worn every day. Um, another thing is because of Easter lilies, uh, white lily, that's famous for... Uh, been associated with the IRA and, and the troubles and stuff like that. So it's like, um, shall we say, like, uh, like uh, it's like an unwritten rule that if you see somebody wearing um, uh, a lily, you know why they're wearing a lily. You know, it, it's it's like um, 
it's like a Freemason. You see a Freemason ring, you know, okay, he's a Freemason. You don't have to ask him, do you know? Mm-hmm. Is, that, is, that, is that like, I don't know, it's very much specific, but are things like the Easter Rising actually commemorated in Ireland? Is it still remembered today? I know I know a lot of the battles of the Great War aren't commemorated in the UK day to day, but are these are these really actually very historical political moments actually commemorated day to day in Ireland? Well, Easter Easter Monday there will be. You'll see like the the, the regular army, the Irish army, um to this day, Easter weekend is a big weekend for them because that's the start of Irish nationality, shall we say. Um, they took that date as in this is when we started Irish nationality this is when we become, become, became a republic because if you remember uh, we, I brought, I forgot about it I didn't, I didn't talk about it when they took over the GPO they read the proclamation and on the uh, Pierce read the proclamation on the steps of the GPO which declared Ireland a republic so historically Ireland states on that day that's when we became a republic was 1916 even though we didn't become a republic until the late 20s early 30s um the state states that we are a republic since 1930 or since 1916 because that's when the proclamation was read out oh that's cool so it's good it's good to see it's remembered you know at the end of the day regardless of what your in your interests or your political leaning are at the end of the day the, we are looking at the past and we are looking at these subjects with independent eye i know i know there's guys who'll be listening who are interested in german world or one world or two military we're not interested in the politics here at the end of the day we're interested in historical fact and remembering the lives of whatever side you fought on um well so thank you so much, John, for coming on today. It's been an absolute fantastic in-depth look at a subject which a lot of us for me are looking at. But I'm going to say now is everyone who can get onto 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 YouTube and have a look at Era Military Collectibles. So I think he might be releasing a video, hopefully over the Easter period, reference this subject and a certain British war medal. And those of you who are available and want to come along and see more about the history of North, well, not just Northern Ireland, but the Irish Ireland as well, and over uh, British history over since since the time of the English Civil War, come along to Moira Furnace on the twenty second and twenty third of April, twenty twenty three, to the Living History UK Festival. Firstly, thank you again, John, for coming on today. No problem. I'm glad to be here. I'm sure I'll be here again. I'm, I'm sure our international correspondent will have a regular slot in future. But all that's all I'm going to say now is keep history alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, Keep history alive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.